The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. How did you go from sharing stories over the years to deciding to write a book? Good question, Mayor. Good question. Still not a good question. After all these years, I've thought about it so much. (laughs) Not a good question. Not particularly probing, not particularly interesting. Not a good question. Sorry, Madam Mayor, and sorry, it's Madam Secretary. Madam Secretary, right? Because she... I have no clue. You're asking the wrong guy. (laughs) Uh, maybe our guests will know he's has an outstanding well of information uh, ready to dive into at any time. By the way, I just want to say something. I'm still uh, here in Los Angeles, this beautiful uh, Airbnb, and they're washing the windows. I just want to announce that. I told our guests that this already. So they're washing the windows. There was a window washer looking in, <laughs> but he's gone. I don't know where he went, but he left his ladder. So there's like a ladder just... Maybe I'll do the show from the ladder. Please do don't do the show from a ladder. Oh, sorry. Okay. <laughs> don't, don't, it's not your property. All right. The Ben Jarofsky Show for Thursday, April 21st. Oh, yesterday was Reefer Day, Ben. Ben, did you get high yesterday? By any no, but it was, I, I did not get high. I've not gotten high since roughly, mm, I think it was the Ronald Reagan administration, but out here in California, I was surrounded by people. Everybody was celebrating. And it's cheap, Ben. It's so cheap out there in California. You don't <laughs> have to break the bank to get a couple of, you know, a little pre-rolls. Just you know, indulge. You suck up the Cali vibes. I know our listeners are hearing that voice and going, I know that voice. That voice of God. <laughs> <laughs> He's back, ladies and gentlemen. He thought he could duck and dodge and avoid us. Uh-uh. We tracked him down. Yes can't wait to bring this guest on but yes the guest knows a lot about reefer in california because he was just in california and i'm sure he was enjoying the reefer but uh, but yeah but today's no, ben jarofsky yeah. show is brought to you by seiu healthcare illinois indiana the chicago federation of labor the chicago teachers union and chicago reader chicagoreader.com for all things there is to know the city of chicago where to go what to do what to eat what to drink what kind of pot to smoke and so much more including columns from our very own ben jarofsky chicago reader chicagoreader.com and if you want to help out this program you can chicagoreader.com forward slash jarofsky j-o-r-a v is in victory s-k why? And I, that was a bad question from Mayor Lightfoot to Hillary Clinton. But here's a good question. Did you know Illinois now has an average monthly revenue of over $100 million from recreational cannabis sales? Yes. As of 2022, Chicago hosts an impressive 44 cannabis dispensaries. The Windy City is the perfect place for the Illinois Cannabis Convention, June 10th through 11th. Brought to you by NECAN, the convention will be the largest gathering of the existing local medical cannabis industry and those getting into the new adult-use recreational market. The convention will showcase more than 100 companies, brands, and product lines. There's also four full programming tracks running each day for medical, business, cultivation, and social justice, featuring dozens of experts, expert speakers as well. And they have practical knowledge and advice for attendees of all levels of experience. All are welcome. Go to NECAN.com slash Illinois, N-E-C-A-N-N.com slash Illinois for information and to register. 
Today is Thursday, April 21st. Are you dancing? Are you okay, Ben? That's dancing? Okay, that's dancing. And this is the Ben Jarofsky Show. And now your host, Chicago Reader columnist, Ben Jarofsky. Yeah, hello everybody, Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this the Marvelous Thursday, and here's why. Because the man is absolutely marvelous. I know we're a political show. I know I'm not supposed to talk about sports. I know I'm supposed to just talk about things like Bernie and Lori Lightfoot and MAGA and Trump and all that stuff. And I will get into all that in parking meters with my distinguished guest, whose voice you obviously recognize. And so long time Ben Drosky show listeners know who's on deck waiting to, to uh, join the discussion. But I t- must pa- pause for a moment to say last night's performance by DeMar DeRozan of the Chicago Bulls was uplifting. My guest today is a young lefty. He's not the young lefty who regularly appears on the show, named Miles Kamflassen, who is a diehard Bulls fan, who is probably somewhere over the moon right now, as all Bulls fans are last night. Everybody said the Milwaukee Bucks were going to sweep my beloved Chicago Bulls. All the experts said, why are we even having a playoff? The Bucks are just going to win. Huh, I'm an expert. Well, last night, the sound of sobbing that you heard with cheeseheads up north just wah, wah, because <laughs> their little bucks lost. My beloved Chicago Bulls. Oh, I'm so happy, ladies and gentlemen. I am so absolutely happy. We live on the Chicago Bulls. Great win. Every time I thought the Bucks were going to, the Bulls got off to that big lead. And every time the Bucks made a run, I said, oh, that's it. The Bucks are going to overtake the Bulls one more time. My Bulls are going to lose. We're going to get swept. DeMar DeRozan, bam, with a jump shot. Bam, with another jump shot. Block a shot. And how about Mr. Alex Caruso? Steals, block shots, etc. So feel good, Chicago. All right, beloved Bulls won. It's now 1-1 tied. Uh, by the way, the uh, window washer has reemerged. <laughs> window washer update. <laughs> I think I might bring him in and ask him what he thought about the Chicago Bulls. Uh, I am wearing my Chicago Reader T-shirt. Solidarity with my um, brothers and sisters in the Readers Union. They had a protest today. I, of course, was on vacation, so missed the protest. I'm with them. Uh, heart and soul. And uh, again, I will make another appeal to Len Goodman. All you have to do, Len is pass ownership over to Tracy Bame and the not-for-profit, and the reader will continue. The reader will live. If you don't do that, the reader dies. When the reader dies, a voice dies in the city of Chicago. And I'm not even just talking about my big mouth, okay? I'm not even talking about my articles or newsletters or this podcast. I'm just talking in a general sense about what the reader means in the city of Chicago. And Michael Utrecht is my guest, and he's a young journalist. And uh, he's the heart and soul of Jacobin uh, magazine right now. But a guy like him, his, if you trace the roots of a guy like Micah or a guy like Miles or any pretty much any lefty writer who came of age in Chicago, you connect into the reader. Because the reader had the guts uh, to just to take on the man in the city of Chicago. Because it was an alternative newspaper. It was like connected back to the days of like hippie newspapers in the 70s. You know, and the man couldn't kill the reader. Daly couldn't kill the reader. Rom couldn't kill the reader. And people, let me tell you, they tried. If that literally killed the reader, like... 
maybe metaphorically kill a few of the big mouths who are writing for the reader. So they couldn't do it. So it's really twisted and weird and kind of sick and it's driving me insane that a, a lefty like Len Goodman, who extended his hand to quote unquote save the reader, would be the man that kills the reader. I'm appealing to you, Len. You've been on this show. You're a friend of this show. All you have to do is turn over control of the reader to the not-for-profit. It becomes somebody else's problem. Tracy Bame and her team, many of whom have been on this show as well, I see you, Lenny, will be responsible for raising the money to keep the reader afloat. We're going to talk about this with Micah because he knows a thing or two about keeping publications afloat in this day and age, particularly lefty publications, publications that think outside the box. So maybe, you know, there's the, the old conventions have not worked for the reader. We have to, we're trying something different. We're going to a not-for-profit, but we can't raise the money we need to raise to make our payroll until you turn the reader over to the not-for-profit, Len. You got, that's all you got to do. Then it becomes her problem. Then it becomes Tracy's problem and Karen Hawkins' problem. They will have to raise the money to make payroll. You don't have to make it anymore. All you got to do is turn it over to them, and the reader won't die. 9-11 couldn't kill the reader. Recessions couldn't kill the reader. Mayor Daly and Mayor Rahm couldn't kill the reader. It would be just so painfully, cruelly ironic that a leftist who says he supports the reader would be the guy that ultimately killed the reader. So I'm appealing to you, Len Goodman, please just turn it over to Tracy. Really, no one cares about the intricacies of the debate between you and Tracy and the reader staffers, et cetera, and so forth. I could tell you that. But people would really care if the reader died. And a lot of good, I talked about this yesterday, a lot of good journalists lose their jobs don't have the money for rent, don't have the money for mortgage, don't have health care. So all you got to do, all you got to do is transfer it. It's all over. It's done. And it becomes Tracy Bames' baby and her problem. So come on, Lana, I'm making that one last bit. You could be DeMarvelous DeRozan. You could come through in the clutch. Just think about it, man. The ball is in your hands. I'm going to use a basketball metaphor. Ball's in your hands. You want the big shot? Take the big shot. Save the freaking reader. All right. Ben, can I just say that I, I uh, obviously agree with you 100%. I remember uh, when I first moved to Chicago in 2009, I read every issue of the reader. I could find I read every single Ben Jarofsky column every week. I was a religious uh, reader of uh, the reader. Excuse me, 2007 is when I moved to Chicago, 2007. Uh, and I, re I re read it religiously. It was a real honor of my life, honestly, when I had a, one uh, cover story. It was a profile of Kim Fox a number of years ago, right before her election. I've written uh, four or five articles for the reader over the years. And lots of people, you know, some of the most important stories in all of Chicago journalism history have been through the reader, obviously. Uh, most notably, perhaps uh, the exposés about the John Burge torture scandals. I mean, the, the reader was where those uh, stories first uh, appeared. 
Uh, and many people have walked through its uh, storied doors. I know uh, Chris Hayes, the MSNBC host, had a long stint of uh, writing freelance articles for the reader for a while. So I am a, a huge believer in the reader, a loyal reader of the reader. Uh, almost came very close to buying a, a, a reader hoodie the other day off the website in a moment of slight inebriation where I was like, <laughs> ah, I think they deserve my 50 bucks. I should give this to them. Um, so I, I, I know, you know, Len Goodman is a, uh, he used to fund the uh, in these times magazine where I used to work and um, certainly has done quite a number of really important I mean, I funded a lot of very important causes uh, in Chicago progressive causes but it is a bit of a mystery as to why uh, this guy won't take his uh, his foot off the neck of the of this this crucial uh, journalistic institution in Chicago but I definitely hope that he does Yes, uh, I'm, I'm with you 100%, and I'll probably be saying this until they turn the mic off. <laughs> but uh, Micah, uh, not to play at words with Mike, I think I'll probably figure out a way to turn the mic back on. It's going to take a lot to silence this big mouth, uh, that is uh, for certain. All right, uh, Micah, welcome back, Connor. Uh, Micah and uh, was on the show a lot back in 2019 and 2020, and then, Micah, you kind of disappeared uh, to a certain degree. Uh, so tell folks what uh, about your journeys in life and what has uh, changed, a big significant change in your life. I think, it, how long ago was it, about a year ago? I've lost track of time, Micah. Uh, but, but I want to say it was about a year ago uh, that you made the move. So talk about it. I moved to New York six months ago. I'm not sure your listeners care particularly about my own personal journey, but I had been in Chicago for nearly 15 years and uh, decided I wanted a, uh, a shift. I wanted to change. I mean, I worked for, as an editor for uh, Jacobin Magazine, which is a socialist magazine that's based in New York, but there are several of us who are in Chicago. Uh, and we have an office at In These Times Magazine. Uh, we rent an office there. And, you know, I'd, I'd been there since uh, undergrad. I went to Loyola for undergrad and uh, had very formative experiences in Chicago, wrote two books there, including one about the Chicago Teachers Union, which I think maybe we're going to talk about a little later. Uh, Chicago really shaped me. I, I was involved in the labor movement, uh, worked for In These Times for a little while. So Chicago was the place where I really became who I am and got into the labor movement, got into journalism and publishing. And uh, I miss it very much. Uh, I got to go back for a conference a couple of weeks ago and had just a wonderful time. I, I, I was there and I was thinking, you know, I'm, I'm not upset, I'm not sad that I moved to New York. I think that was the right choice for my life. But the living is very good in Chicago. Just going around with, actually with Miles Camp lasted out of the town in uh, Logan Square, I uh, had a great time and, and really realized how much I missed the city. So I'm hoping to be able to come back as uh, frequently as possible because it is uh, a vital uh, a city where a lot of very vital things are, are happening in, in the world and, and uh, one that I uh, definitely want to be a part of my life despite now uh, residing in Brooklyn. Well, I, I think your last appearance on the show was had it was very Chicago-esque uh, saga that you told. <clears throat> I remember it. you you were walking down in your old neighborhood, Logan Square. I think it was on Milwaukee Avenue, if I'm correct, doing this from memory. Uh, and you were reading a book. This is the de this is <laughs> the detail. Micah was literally reading a book as he's walking, folks. We had the deep. If you want to hear the deeper dive of walking while reading, go back and check out that old conversation. Uh, a book about up, the civil rights movement, I should add, which is relevant to the story. Wow, I just can't believe you remember the actual title of the book. Uh, anyway, and uh, you looked up and sitting at an outdoor cafe, I believe, uh, was none other than Mayor Lori Lightfoot. 
and so then you had a conversation with her of sorts. Uh, and then when I read about it on Twitter, or however else I've, I found about it, I'm not quite sure. I immediately called you, come on the show uh, and uh, talk about it. Um, but which leads to this. Let's get right down to the heart of things. Uh, listener Frank, thank you. A shout out to you. He sent me an article from Reuters, fascinating article that ran about a week ago. Uh, and um, in which it talked about an appeal of a lawsuit in which Micah is the named plaintiff. And so we talked at the out of the show about negative legacies. Uh, if you like, for instance, kill the reader, you'll have a negative legacy. If this lawsuit is successful, Micah will be a freaking hero. A hero. And this will... His adulation will cross all uh, racial, ethnic, political lines because pretty much the only thing Chicagoans agree on is that they despise the parking meter deal. The deal where for $1.1 billion, the city of Chicago and its infinite idiocy sold an asset that's probably worth $10 billion. Only Chicago's politicians would think they could sell the public on this. And God bless you, public. You were too smart to fall for it. Uh, and you rebelled and who knows, maybe that's why uh, Daly didn't run again in 2010. So everybody in Chicago has kind of accepted the parking meter deal, Micah. You've added your name to a lawsuit that is challenging it. So why don't you explain uh, the details of the lawsuit and how you got involved with it? Take it away. Well, I think the initial involvement in the lawsuit has to be traced back to the many Ben Jarofsky columns that I feel like I read about the parking meter privatization deal as a young uh, college student in uh, Chicago or in my early 20s, whatever that was. Uh, you know, I, I probably don't need to tell anybody who's listening this, what a debacle, what a just truly one of the worst municipal privatization deals in the history of the United States. I mean, you can't get much worse in terms of privatizing public goods than the parking meter deal. As you said, of course, everybody hates the parking meter deal. And so um, the law office of Thomas Gagan, who uh, many of your listeners are probably familiar with, a longtime uh, labor lawyer and kind of gadfly lawyer about town in Chicago, uh, approached me and asked me if I wanted to be um, a, a plaintiff in this suit that was challenging the uh, the parking meter deal on the on the basis of uh, for, for one thing the fact that it's essentially a monopoly deal that has been handed to this uh, corporation for the length of the deal that it goes uh, which is the better part of a century uh, the fact that it traps Chicago into using that what should be public space for the enrichment of uh, the the investors who invested in the parking meter deal rather than um, being used uh, and and and. Uh, not only does it trap the city into paying money to this this conglomeration of of investors, but it prevents the city from using it for something other than private cars parking there. I mean, it prevents you from being able to turn currently what's currently parking spaces into bus lanes or into green space. I mean, I live in New York City now, and you go around. Brooklyn and Manhattan, and you see occasional like parks that have been little mini parks that have been built in parking spaces that are owned by the city. The city's decided to do that or using the space for outdoor dining. Well, you can't do that in Chicago uh, because the city has to pay uh, the parking meter uh, company, Chicago Parking Meters LLC, uh, for lost revenue if it wants to use uh, the streets for anything but uh, you know private parking parking for individual cars. 
So um, the, I was, of course, happy to sign on to the loss, and I do feel like it's the most Chicago thing I've ever done. I mean, it happened at the time of my the the tail end of my time in Chicago, but uh, I just felt that you know to see my my name on this lawsuit against this universally loathed parking meter deal. Also, uh, I've spent my life and hope to continue spending my life fighting austerity and privatization and. Uh, you know, the, the, the tentacles of the free market seeping its way into every aspect of our lives. So it only felt fitting that uh, I would, with one of my last acts living in Chicago, I would uh, try to destroy this god-awful parking meter deal that everyone in the city hates. Yeah, and by the way, when uh, uh, Micah used that term free market, uh, he had air quotes around it because there is no such thing as a free market. Uh, somebody's going to pay for it one way or another. Uh, so generally when people say free market, it means uh, somebody really rich and influential is getting a huge break. Uh, and uh, in this particular case, before we get to the, the issues in the lawsuit, uh, Mike, and its state, let's just point out this, that it was presented to the city of Chicago uh, as an easy alternative to raising taxes in a moment, uh, in a, a recessionary moment, around 2000, at the end of, like, what was it, 2008, of losing track of time, uh, where it was a downturn in the economy. And uh, Mayor Daley said, this is a good way. Uh, this is a great way to avoid having to raise your property taxes. And, Micah, you've left town, but this argument is still prevails. Uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot yesterday uh, brought it out, trotted out that argument to defend a casino. And she said, well, we, this casino will enable us <laughs> uh, to avoid raising taxes. Any Chicago with any brain realizes that your taxes are going to go up anyway because the casino will not nearly provide, will not provide enough revenue to offset a tax hike. That's number one. And number two, all you're doing is squeezing some suckers. <laughs> you know, so it's the same thing with the parking meter company, Micah. They essentially lent us a uh, billion dollars and we have to pay them back over 75 years or whatever it is to $10 billion. So it's, it, it wasn't a free market. It's costing us tremendous amount of money, all because uh, that mayor, just like this mayor, is afraid to have any kind of progressive tax. Take it away. Your thoughts. I mean, this is kind of a wonky word. People don't always know exactly what it means. But this, this word neoliberalism is a word that characterizes uh, much of governance in the United States over the last several decades. And it has to do with this, exactly this kind of of uh, privatization and this kind of putting the onus for funding the basic stuff of government on the backs of uh, everyday people, rather than the one thing that we know is absolutely crucial to be able to solve many of the problems that we have, which is taxing the rich and corporations. That That is how we get out of the, 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 the many problems. That's how we fund public services. That's how we fund the stuff that we need. But this, this neoliberal idea that people like Mayor Daley, certainly Rahm Emanuel, and Lori Lightfoot herself. I mean, they're, they're all, they're pushing anything but taxing the rich and taxing corporations, basically. Uh, and, and they'll, you know, sort of sell you, oh, we just need to do this one weird trick to fix all of our issues. Oh, we just need to privatize the parking meter deals, and then that'll, the, the, that'll be off of our uh, backs. But it turns out, of course, that we all end up getting screwed uh, in parking downtown. The city is unable to use its uh, public spaces for actual, you know, public uh, for the benefit of the public, uh, and you actually end up paying more rather than less. Uh, to, but, but a group of Wall Street investors uh, do get extremely wealthy off of uh, the deal. Um, and this is just characterizing so much of 
the stuff of government in the 21st century. I mean, go down the line, you know, uh, public schools, you know, the privatization of public schools, obviously a huge issue in Chicago in recent decades. So uh, it's sort of of a piece which uh, with so much of uh, this neoliberal turn since at least the Reagan era, if not uh, before. But, you know, Chicago has been this place where we have the, the country's worst privatization deals. Uh, we have, you know, serious attacks on public schools and uh, lots of bad things happening. But it's also the, the city where there has been pushback, where you've got the Chicago Teachers Union who's fighting back against uh, school privatization and where you've got, uh, hopefully I'll be able to add my name uh, to, the, to that list of effective pushback uh, in terms of this pushback against the parking meter. Hopefully we'll be able to look back and say, Ah uh, yes, this was the, this lawsuit was the moment uh, when uh, the municipal privatization debacle of uh, privatizing privatizing the parking meters uh, was was pushed back, uh, and uh, you know we'll we'll see if that uh, we'll we'll see how it plays out in court. But that's my hope. All right, uh, let's talk about that. How it plays out in court. Uh, it, it was a suit filed in a federal court here in Chicago, and you're correct. Uh, let's give a shout out to Tom Thomas Gagan, the uh, attorney who filed the suit. Uh, Micah lent his name to be used as a plaintiff, uh, and there's other plaintiffs as well. I don't have the list in front of me, uh, but Micah's is the lead plaintiff, so <laughs> it'll be like Roe v. Wade. You know what I mean? If this goes down, people, you drift. How do you pronounce that thing, huh? <laughs> uh, so uh, people will be struggling that for, with that for a long time. Uh, uh, so it's a local judge, a uh, federal judge, Kennelly, I believe his name, and I'm doing this off the top of my head. And you would think that a guy from Chicago, I don't know anybody in Chicago who likes the park. Every now and then I run into like this, uh, like a neolib who will defend it, but they're not, they're, it's like, I don't think it's in their heart. You know what I'm saying, Mike? I like to, somehow or other, if you ask a few questions, you realize they're on the payroll somehow or other. And so they're st- still putting daily spin out. Well, Pat, you know, you got to understand, uh, we were really facing a deficit at the time. So, you know, uh, y- you'll get some spin every now and then. But I would think across the board, uh, most people are against it. So you think this judge would say, ah, yeah, thank you, Micah, for giving me an opportunity to blow this thing up. But no, <laughs> no. T- typical Demi judge, man, you know, not like that judge down in Florida who just took the opportunity to throw the airplane masks out the window or uh, masks out the window on airplanes. So the judge ruled against you in the first go around. Uh, by the way, before we go any further, do you know who you're up against in this case? Do you know, did you, do you know who the opposing lawyer is? Dan Webb. Dan Webb is the opposing lawyer, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> so when you're patting him on the back for the Jesse Smollett case, everybody, you ought to think about him. And every time you put a little money in the meter. All right. Uh, so the judge threw the case out on the grounds uh, and I read that, um, this is from memory from the Reuters article uh, that local uh, doctrine can shield certain local. Uh, it cannot shield what local governments. Let me try to do this. Correct. Are shielded from these kinds of lawsuits. Uh, so you can't overturn it. Uh, the parking meter deal. I think that's the essence of the judge's decision. So what's your response to the judge's initial decision? Well, the legal arguments I will leave up to my lawyers. I'm certainly no legal scholar, but um, you know, I'm glad that the case has been reopened uh, and that we're going to uh, that we got another shot at this because it's an extremely important case in the not just in the the history and future of Chicago, but uh, the history and uh, the future of all kinds of municipal privatization deals like this around the country. I mean. 
uh, Chicago has been really out front on some of these awful privatization deals. And so, again, it's my hope that uh, a lawsuit like this can change the tide and uh, and push back against this because it's so damaging to our cities, to democracy, to our bottom line, uh, to to the stuff of, of governance, like the, the, the future of democratic governance. Like if we turn over the operation of things like uh, parking spaces, which are essentially public goods, they're, they're owned by the public. They should, it's our public space that we all share together. You know, we're, we, the more of that that we turn over, the more we erode democracy in this country. Um, and so we, we, there's a, there's a real strong argument uh, to take back our public goods like parking spaces uh, from corporate power. We all know that we're living in a time of a breathtaking uh, economic uh, inequality and a distortion of our political system in all kinds of different ways. And so I think that a case like this is really about bringing democracy back to put public goods in public hands. All right. Fair enough. Uh, and before we uh, leave Chicago and talk about what uh, I picked your brain about Peter Thiel, uh, which is something that's on your mind, it's and it's sort of related uh, to powerful people uh, using uh, the courts uh, for their own agenda. Uh, you mentioned the Chicago teachers, you know, I want to give a shout out uh, to Chicago magazine, uh, Heidi Stevens, uh, profile of Stacey Davis Gates. Uh, this is uh, relevant to our conversation with Micah. Micah wrote the book or one of the books about the Chicago teacher strike, the famous Chicago teacher strike of 2012, which really changed, uh, organizing union organizing in many ways. Uh, be, uh, and uh, of course made uh, Karen Lewis a nationally known, a hero to many people. Uh, it, was a, uh, it was a surprising, I have to give a lot of credit to Chicago Magazine and Heidi Stevens. And I'm effusive here, uh, Micah, because I have always, I said this to you before we went on the air, and I, I don't know if I've ever said this on the air. Uh, I know that there's pressures on reporters in the city of Chicago. When you write, when you're covering education, maybe it's not as strong now as it used to be, but back in the, Last since Daly took control and took control of schools, there was like pressure that reporters felt to be contemptuous of the Chicago Teachers Union and their leadership. Uh, and it's because I, well, I have many theories about this. Uh, so I'll get your thoughts on why you think it's the case or if you agree with me at all. But Heidi Stevens was so open-minded about Stacey Davis Gates, uh, who uh, is known for just being fearless and speaking out about what she thinks are injustices and just standing up to powerful people. I, I was really caught off, ground, off guard. I mean, I just wasn't expecting. I was like, oh, here we go. Here's going to be another mainstream article denouncing teachers union leaders, you know, as like this union, like thugs of sorts who are like, uh, uh, damaging school children but uh no it it was surprisingly what am i saying open to uh what stacy had to say do you subscribe to the notion i began with my assertion that there's pressure on reporters in this town to be uh, hostile to the teachers union of course you only have to take a glance at the kind of coverage that has characterized most of the coverage of the ctu in particular over the years uh who can forget the 
famous uh, Tribune op-ed, I think, by Kristen McQuarrie, sort of wait, wait, wishing for a Hurricane Katrina-type storm that would wipe out uh, the CPS and allow us to sort of start anew. Uh, I mean, sort of grotesque stuff that has been published on, under the name of the most important institutions of journalism in the city of Chicago uh, that is almost universally uh, sort of frothing at the mouth with uh, with uh, disdain for uh, the Chicago Teachers Union. And what is the Chicago Teachers Union? I mean, it's a group of teachers who uh, have they have a, a body that allows them to bargain collectively and, and not just accept whatever edicts come on high about what the nature of public education should look like. The, the, you know, maybe the uh, 20 plus thousand educators who make the Chicago public school system run should have a democratic say in how their school system is run and what happens to the, both the students and the teachers of that system. So the, the union is the way uh, that that happens uh, and without that, otherwise, teachers are just steamrolled by whatever they're, they're told from above. And so um, th- that, has, uh, that makes some people mad who <laughs> work in the, the corporate media in Chicago and around the country, I guess. But, of course, uh, the CTU really, lest we forget, the, the CTU's 2012 strike and the 2010 leadership shift that led to the 2012 strike um, totally change the way that we talk about public education in the United States. I mean, there's no 2018-2019 teacher strike wave, for example, without the CTU giving that that uh, an incredibly strong example that teachers can fight back and win. Uh, the Democratic Party a, a decade ago was obsessed with privatization of education, with the charter schools. Uh, you know, this, the supposedly left-wing party was embracing these right-wing solutions, quote-unquote, uh, to the, the problems of uh, that public education is facing and said that the only way to do it was to destroy teachers' abilities to collectively bargain. That has shifted because of the Chicago Teachers Union. Um, and so I think that that, that shift and, and the union's demonstrated ability to, uh, to really flex its muscle, to go on strike, to advocate for uh, the black and brown, especially working class and poor uh, uh, parents and students uh, of Chicago public schools. I mean, they've built real trust on the ground from communities throughout the city. Uh, and I think that the institutions of uh, Chicago journalism have had to pay attention to that. And uh, the profile of Stacey Davis Gates really reflects that. Yeah. Uh, and uh, when you look back on that Chicago, uh, the strike of 2002, do you, what is your memory of how the, uh, the mainstream is covered? Do you think it was fair coverage of, uh, of that strike? Uh, do you think it shifted? You know, did you think they uh, called it like, like what, it, what is it? John Roberts said, we're uh, umpires. We just call balls and strikes. What's your sense? Well, I've worked in independent media my entire life and will probably continue to do so. And I've done that precisely because mainstream media, it reflects corporate interests in the United States rather than other interests like the interests of the vast majority of its citizens, for example. Um, and so it's not a surprise that especially a decade ago when that strike happened, you, you heard all over the place that these are greedy teachers who didn't care about what happened to their students. They didn't care that they were out of class. Uh, they needed to shut up and just get back to teaching and, and not be insisting on all of the things that they were insisting on or, not, or certainly not to bring up additional uh, issues like 
adequate staffing in Chicago public schools, the lack of affordable housing in Chicago, police brutality in particular against black and brown people. I mean, the CTU took up all of these issues and has continued to take it up over the past 12 years. Um, and and the, 10 years ago, the institutions of uh, mainstream media really were not happy about that. Um, but because the CTU has built so much power um, and has established itself as this trusted force that's fighting for the entire working class of Chicago, uh, I think that there's there's been a, sh- a shift, a slight shift, uh, and maybe not in the uh, Chicago Tribune editorial page, but like in, in some outlets, there is a shift in, in how the union uh, is is treated, and you can you can see that in the profile of Stacey. You can, and and, and to credit Heidi Stevens, uh, she as a column, she was a columnist for the Tribune uh, for a while. For I, I don't know how long, for many several years anyway. And uh, her, she was one of the few columnists uh, in, in the Tribune or the Sun Times that showed sympathy or empathy for uh, union the union itself. You know, and you're right. The standard line uh, was articulated by uh, a former alderman, uh, Proco Joe Moreno, who went on Fox TV. Remember that one in the strike? Uh, And he said (laughs) something along. And I paraphrase you, paraphrase you, Proco Joe, uh, doing this from memory. Uh, so I apologize if I don't get it precisely, but something along, I don't like the union, but I love teachers. <laughs> so it was sort of like, uh, you're right. They were playing that. And I, I love my teachers. As long as she's meek and mild and lets people just kick her around. Great teacher. But if she stands up for herself and I use the she on purpose, uh, because it's a largely, uh, the workforce is largely consists of women. All right. So, uh, I urge everybody to check that out. You've got uh, Peter Thiel on your mind, uh, and uh, I I know him uh, uh, mainly because of the fact that he bankrolled a lawsuit that uh, effectively put Gawker out of business. Uh, so it's a pretty destructive force he's been uh, in many ways, uh, a right-wing uh, multi-billionaire, I think. Uh, and you, uh, you've got him on your mind. You have not written about him. Maybe you will. Uh, you wrote, you just read a biography of him. Uh, talk about the impact that, uh, Peter Thiel has, uh, on our culture and our economy, et cetera. Go ahead. Well, part of the reason I'm thinking about this is because especially these days, we're constantly reminded how little power average people have in society and how much of an outsized influence that very wealthy people have. I mean, to go back to what we were talking about at the very beginning of the show, uh, we are the Chicago Reader is at the whim of a very wealthy man uh, who uh, is an investor into the Reader uh, because uh, well because he's he's invested money into it um, and you know so many aspects of our lives are, are determined by these whims of uh, individually wealthy people and uh, yeah I just read this. Uh, great book uh, that's called uh, The Contrarian, uh, Peter Thiel and Silicon Valley's Pursuit of Power by Max Chafkin. And I would recommend it, but only if you're ready to feel pretty down about the state of uh, American society. I mean, Peter Thiel is a a guy who's a a far right billionaire, uh, libertarian type, uh, someone who um, was uh, involved in the highest levels of the Trump administration in its early days and had the number three speaking slot on the final night of the Republican National Convention in 2016. And he's a guy who um, started off as an investor uh, or made his money, at least, in Silicon Valley, 
was involved in uh, PayPal, one of the earlier investors in PayPal, uh, an early investor in Facebook. Um, and, and, you know, Silicon Valley is known as this place supposedly that's very liberal, uh, you know, especially uh, within the Democratic Party. Silicon Valley donors are uh, very, uh, some of the biggest donors to the Democratic Party. Uh, and I think they like to style themselves as sort of, uh, you know, yeah, we're, we're, we're billionaires, but like we're, we're not evil billionaires, uh, which you could definitely be disputed for basically all of them. Uh, but Peter Thiel has no compunction about uh, not being seen as evil. He's very uh, open about how uh, evil he is. You're, you're correct that a couple of years ago, he bankrolled the lawsuit that uh, sunk Gawker, which I believe is one of the real low points in the freedom of the press in the 21st century in America thus far. I mean, this guy had it out for uh, this this uh, website. Um, he had a personal vendetta against them because of its reporting on him. And uh, because he was insanely wealthy, he could just sink this uh, website. And the Gawker has been resurrected recently, but it's a shadow of its former self. And there's no website or, or outlet anywhere that, that really matches what Gawker was up to in its heyday, which is uh, really holding uh, powerful people, uh, especially in Silicon Valley, but also across our society, uh, to account. They were fearless in their willingness to do that. Um, and that is why Peter Thiel did not like them. And that's why he bankrolled this lawsuit. So, um, you know, there's, there's much to say about all that Peter Thiel has been up to from uh, bankrolling Trump type far right candidates at all levels. Um, so, you know, somebody who has uh, investments in a lot of the, you know, Palantir is, is a big data company that is involved in all kinds of uh, nefarious surveillance schemes. Um, you know, he's got this real, uh, just disdain for women and seemingly for people of color and for a whole range uh, of people out in the world. And uh, I'm, I'm just, it's very much on my mind because uh, we're living in, in the world of Peter Thiel's. The Peter Thiel's are the ones who are running the show in America. And uh, it's, it's led to some pretty, uh, bleak outcomes, and it's only going to get bleaker uh, with climate change and with all the other crises that we face. And so, and, and part of the reason why I care so much about forces like the Chicago Teachers Union is that I see those kinds of uh, organizations of working people as the way that you push back against the Peter Thiels of the world. You know, the the, the billionaires say that, you know they fund their candidate over here and they fund the attack on a website over here, and they've got all these things in play. And the way that average people historically have fought back is through working class institutions like unions. That's why the CTU is so important. That's why lefties like me never shut up about the labor movement because that's the best hope that we have in order to uh, fight back against untrammeled corporate power. You mentioned that Peter Thiel claims to be a libertarian. <clears throat> Excuse me. And we've been talking a lot about this uh, in relation to another man, a uh, billionaire who claims to be a, a libertarian, uh, Elon Musk, uh, who wants to take control of Twitter. And so uh, how seriously do you take uh, his claims to be a libertarian? Uh, Ferns, I'm just off the top of my head. I've not heard either Elon Musk uh, or Peter Thiel uh, rail about the efforts by Ron DeSantis in Florida uh, to uh, censor math books, uh, for instance. That's just one uh, example that pops into my mind. And really, you know, libertarians are generally missing in action 
when it when it comes to assaults on uh, liberties from the right. So how seriously uh, do you take his claims that he's a libertarian or do you think it's just something, a tactic he uses uh, to advance his uh, larger agenda? Well, I think he's, he's very much a libertarian, but libertarians love to, you know, their, their PR for themselves is like, oh, well, we don't, we don't want you to have any restrictions on your ability to do drugs. Like they've gotten so much mileage out of being for legal weed. I think that, uh, libertarians that, that they love to flog that over and over. Like, We're cool. We smoke pot, you know, they check us out. Uh, but, but libertarians, the libertarian agenda in the United States is one uh, that is about letting corporate power run free. Like the, no restrictions on corporations to do whatever they feel like in the world. And that's of course what Peter Thiel has gone and done. So in that sense, he is a great libertarian. He's an excellent libertarian um, because he, he really does think, that people who have lots of money like him are superior human beings to the rest of us and that we should just sort of uh, bow down at their feet and let them do whatever they want to do, keep all of their money, not tax any of it, not put any uh, restrictions on their behavior. And that's very much in keeping with uh, libertarianism historically in the United States. Yes, it is interesting that, uh, as I think about it, the man who proclaims he's a libertarian put Gawker out of business because Gawker... uh, I think it was a Jesse Ventura lawsuit. I'm not, uh, not Jesse Paul Ventura. Kogan. Paul Kogan. How can I get the two of them mixed up? I humbly apologize to Dennis, producer Dennis, uh, who is a, a real knowledgeable fan of wrestling. Uh, I humbly apologize. Dennis. It was just the, the baby boomer in me momentarily stumbling that I uh, slipped over to those uh, wrestlers. Uh, but yeah, it had to do. So it's interesting that the libertarian would destroy, <laughs> would use the federal, the, the, our court system, as his instrument to destroy, he would use a public entity as his instrument uh, to destroy another private company because he didn't like the ideas they were putting out, if you even vaguely call gossip ideas. Uh, Again, the essential contradiction uh, inherited in libertarian philosophy. As you say it, the only thing that libertarians, quote-unquote, like wealthy libertarians really care about is not having to pay taxes and not having any oversight or they're over their corporations. Is that essentially how you see it? Yeah. I mean, it's a philosophy that exists to justify and shore up corporate power uh, because, you know, groups like labor unions come along and say, well, we, we don't like how we're being treated. We think that we deserve better pay. We deserve more of a share of, uh, you know, more of a say on the job every day. Uh, we deserve to be represented by a union. We, our boss shouldn't be able to just fire us at will. And all of these claims go totally against the uh, libertarian ethos. You know that like unions are unions are somehow a, a drag on society. They they destroy our society rather than being the means by which uh, we can uh, have like actual democracy at work and and have a decent standard of li- standard of living for ourselves and for our our families. So, um, yeah, I'm not a big fan of libertarianism. I think that, uh, it is, a a, a philosophy that, that is foreshoring up corporate power rather than benefiting average people. All right. Uh, and, uh, the alternative, let's just uh, try to close with a little positive news, uh, cause it's so grim and gloomy right now. I think I'm going to go start day drinking. Uh, but the alternative, uh, would be, 
I, I suppose the politics of someone like Bernie Sanders, speaking of another subject of a book you wrote, uh, where you talked about the movement, not the man, uh, Bernie Sanders' political movement. As uh, I was talking uh, with Micah before we went on the air, there was a story that Bernie's considering running for president again in 2024 uh, should Biden step down for whatever reason. Uh, I, I've lost track of how old Bernie would be in 2024. Uh, I sort of as much as I love Bernie Sanders and voted for him twice, I'm two for two for Bernie Sanders. Mike, I'm I'm not sure I want Bernie running again uh, for many different reasons. Uh, but talk about the state of the movement. You wrote a book about it's bigger than the man. It's the movement. Uh, talk about the state of Bernie Sanders' political movement. Well, it's a, a sort of ambiguous time in some ways because on the one hand, we have the advances of a number of important socialist elected officials, whether it's the half dozen on the Chicago city council or the, all of them at both the local state and federal level in New York, uh, where I now live, which has, I don't know how many people in both the city council, the state legislature and in the house who identify as socialists. There are very important um, uh, electoral advances that are happening. Uh, on the other hand, the movement feels a little bit stuck in some ways uh, because it hasn't been able to spread outside of uh, urban areas in particular, which is obviously that was part of what was so promising about the Bernie Sanders campaign was that he uh, was appealing to millions and millions of Americans, not just a small handful of them. But then on the other hand, that part of that movement is not just electing people who call themselves socialists to office and then legislating things like affordable housing and free college and Medicare for all and all the rest of it. It's also the working class movement, which, as you know, Ben, uh, has really been uh, exploding in recent uh, weeks and months. I mean, the incredible news that we heard from Amazon uh, that these this scrappy group of workers from an independent union uh, took on Amazon, the, one of the most powerful corporations in the world, and won. I mean, what an incredible story and a real shot in the arm for the American labor movement. I'm actually going on Sunday to a rally in Staten Island at an Amazon facility that Bernie Sanders is going to be uh, attending. Um, so, you know, that to me, that's that's just as important as the stuff that's happening at the electoral level. We have Starbucks workers who are spreading unions around the country like wildfire. Uh, I think I just read before we got on your show that some workers at an Apple store just uh, announced they're filing for a union. So I think unionism is on people's lips um, and people are pissed off. People are mad that they have been treated so poorly at work for decades at this point that wages are stagnant, that their boss can be a bully to them, treat them like absolute garbage. And they have no choice but to say yes to whatever their boss says because they need to make the rent. People are angry about what the, the kind of injustices they're facing at work. And I think that it's uh, potentially it's, you know, I'd always hesitate to make too close of a prediction, but potentially we might be in a period in the next coming years of a real revival of the American labor movement, um, a revival and in interest in organizing and going on strike and in ordinary working people fighting back against the Peter Thiel's of the world. And for my money, if we're going to live in a decent planet, one, one that doesn't completely burn to a crisp under climate change, it's going to take a lot more of that kind of working people organizing together uh, to, to make those kinds of pushback. All right, that's a good place uh, to leave it. I'll hold off a discussion of uh, Mayor Eric Adams. You're going to be, I've just given you a job, whether you want it or not. You're now officially our New York correspondent. Uh, 
<laughs> I accept. I'm going to send you a press card. All right. Uh, <laughs> that would be great. And I would love, you know, I got kind of a lot of responsibilities at my job. I would just love to chase Eric Adams around the city and just watch him in action for you, Ben. There would be okay. nothing that I would enjoy more than that. So I'm honored to accept this assignment. Well, I, I, I must admit, I have a, uh, my, my lefty friends really give me a hard time about this, uh, a fascination with Eric Adams and his politics. Uh, I, he probably would have been my, you know, you have ranked voting in New York. I don't know if you were there for the mayoral election. We talked a lot about that. Like we, I would bring people on from Chicago who have no say whatsoever. And they go, all right, who are you, who are you voting for? You think about that, uh, Micah. They, they're like, I forget how many people voted running for mayor in New York, seven, eight. I can't remember. And <laughs> There are these poor guests would come on my show and have to like study like who they would vote for. I think Eric Adams was my number two. I was fascinated by him. Uh, and uh, I can't say I'm a little disappointed with how he's running because kind of doing what he said he was going to do. But uh, anyway, we'll um, any brief thoughts before I let you go about Eric Adams? A nutshell thoughts so people will understand kind of where you're coming from when you become our official Eric Adams correspondent. I mean, Eric Adams is, there's two things going on with Eric Adams. One, he's an absolute nut. He's like into all this new age stuff. He's like, you know, talking about energy and I don't know. It sounds like chakras. <laughs> like I, you know, it's just stuff that is, I can't even wrap my mind around. But then at the end of the day, he's sort of like a standard centrist neoliberal Democrat in many ways. I mean, the most recent thing that he's been doing is uh, sweeping up homeless people off the streets yeah. of New York in ways that I personally witnessed on the subway that, that are really quite uh, quite brutal. So anti-homelessness policies, not been a friend to affordable housing in the city, uh, recently announced that he wanted to install uh, surveillance, uh, all kinds of new surveillance systems, including metal detectors at every subway stop, which seems insane. Uh, but, you know, he wants to cast a wide net for surveillance in the city. So uh, not a great guy. But I, I will say that, I, you know, obviously I was very against Donald Trump, not a big fan of Donald Trump, but he did bring a certain sort of absurd humor to American <laughs> political life. And I think Eric Adams has sort of filled that space that was formerly taken up by Donald Trump. So if your listeners just want to tune into some absolutely crazy stuff from a major American political leader, they should pay attention to the kind of stuff that Eric Adams is saying. I, and by the way, to that point, metal detectors and subways, that's the first time I put my mind on that. Uh, my instant thought that there would be opposition from the right to metal detectors on subways because it would keep people from, who are holding guns from going on subways. Uh, and this is one of these bizarre moments where the right might turn against law enforcement, if you follow what I'm saying, uh, if it's preventing them from being able to cart their weaponry uh, onto a subway. So I'm going to have to think about that one for a while. You caught me off guard with that one, Mike. I, I did not know that was one of his proposals. Uh, and by the way, that will be a very expensive proposal just just think about that uh, for a moment, the expense of putting a metal detector and then someone to pay attention to the metal detector. Um, that's the kind of jobs. <laughs> that's the kind of jobs uh, that Democratic uh, centrists are willing to fund. Probably be a private company, Micah. Probably the parking meter company will tie it all together. <laughs> They've done such a great job. Why not? Yeah. Uh, all right. Before we let you go, uh, shout outs for J uh, Jacobin, any articles uh, that you want to promote or talk about, tell people, alert people to go ahead, take it away. 
think I've usually said in this portion of your show that people should just read Jacobin. We uh, publish seven new articles every single day, uh, six on the, six, seven during the week, six on the weekends. And uh, jacobinmag.com, J-A-C-O-B-I-N, mag.com. We have a print issue that comes out uh, four times a year. We've got a whole book series. We've got a bunch of international uh, versions of the magazine in Italian and Spanish and Portuguese. We're doing all kinds of stuff at Jacobin. So you should check us out at jacobinmag.com. All right, I'm going to give one more shout out to uh, Maya Goldberg Safer's excellent article on Brittany Griner. She was on the show last week. She did a great job. Uh, so shout out to Maya, who I know is uh, one of those Bulls fans. I was very happy when uh, our beloved Bulls were victorious last night in uh, Milwaukee. Happy, uh, happy our- to have edited that uh, that piece by uh, Maya in Jacobin, uh, Brittany Griner. It's a very important uh, piece. And Maya is the uh, number one super fan of the WNBA. I don't know anybody who loves women's basketball more than Maya. So I hope she stays on the show as a women's basketball correspondent. Oh, she got the job too. She are you kidding? Her press pass is in the mail. Uh, she was hired by the Ben Jarofsky show to be our WNBA correspondent. Uh, and by the way, equal pay scale, just so folks know, no matter how old you are, no matter how experienced you are, no matter, you know, your background, your ethnicity, whatever, you all get paid the same to come on the Ben Jarofsky show. So it's <laughs> <laughs> it's that it's, good money. It's that you got Peter Thiel money right here. Yeah. <laughs> it's Peter Thiel money. It's the kind of money Peter Thiel likes to spend. None. Uh, <laughs> so, all right, Micah, thank you so much. It's great to talk to you again and see you again and uh, keep up the good work in New York. All right. Always happy to be on, Ben. Good talking to you. All right. That's a great Micah Utrecht. Uh, I want to thank him very much. also want to thank the man, the myth, the legend, the pride of Joe of Alton, Illinois, without whom this show would be possible. And as Maya and Micah will tell you, no, Maya, Micah, and Miles. Why are all young lefty writers have the M as their first letter? Hmm, that's an interesting subject for next article. But as Maya, Micah, and Miles can tell you, back home in Alton, they call him Dr. D, and the D stands for the marvelous. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. I've seen a whole lot of catfish, some turtles. Uh, no gators yet, though. How did you? How did you? I've seen a whole lot of catfish. I've seen a whole lot of catfish. How did you? I've seen a whole lot of catfish, some turtles. Uh, no gators yet, though.